We left off, we had finished chapter 1, so let's... The next two chapters are comprised of the seven letters to the churches. Actually, it's smooth sailing as far as outlines go for the first uh, five chapters of this book. We're going to run into stormy seas when we hit chapter 5. We'll have, have to do a few tangents um, to collect things together. So we'll enjoy the, the ease of easy outlines for now. In fact, um, there's a good outline of the whole book in uh, verse 19, believe it or not, of chapter 1. We'll come to that, back to that in a minute. First of all, I'd just like to review with you. The book, name of the book is Revelation. Actually, the, the best uh, way to call it is The Revelation. And uh, not Revelations. Okay? We're not in Revelations chapter 2. We're in Revelation chapter 2. Now, the, the uh, names of, of the books of the Bible are not inspired. So, don't feel bad if you have something a little different written in your Bible. They're just handles uh, that were invented by men so that we can have some common way of coming to the same place in the Bible when we talk to each other. So, we can say, turn to the book of Leviticus and we know where it is. But, uh, <clears throat> as far as names go, usually they're pretty simple, as you know. Uh, the epistles of Paul are typically named after the cities they were written to. Uh, Peter, James, and John had their uh, epistles named after themselves. In the Old Testament, it's a little more interesting. Exodus talks about Exodus, the, the exodus of the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. Leviticus named after the laws for the Levites, <clears throat> and so on. But the book of Revelation actually comes from the first phrase in the book itself. <clears throat> if you look and see, verse 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you have an older Bible, it may say at the top, for your, the title of your book, sometimes it says, The Revelation of St. John. <laughs> or, worse, The Revelation of St. John the Divine. Sorry. Know what the Bible says. It's called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's appropriately named. If there was to be a theme of the book, I think that's a good uh, title for this book. It's the revealing, you see of Jesus Christ. Revealing. Do you see Jesus right now? He's hidden, you see. He's not revealed right now in a physical way. And it's been that way uh, since His first coming. He ascended to heaven and He's there right now. And uh, the world gets away with mocking Him and, and uh, taunting Him and pretending that He uh, doesn't exist. But there's going to come a day when it's all going to end. And it's not going to be hidden anymore. Everyone is going to see Jesus. He is going to be revealed. What a day that will be. The revelation. You see, really, this is what creation is groaning for, this moment when the Lord Jesus will be plainly seen. He came the first time and he was not recognized. He was executed as a criminal. But the second time, as he said himself in the Gospels, as the lightning flashes from the east to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. It's interesting, God chooses three parts of the anatomy to say that everybody is going to be participating in that. It says, every eye shall see him. Imagine that. Every eye. It says, every knee shall bow. Everybody, not just people who are saved. And he says, the things in heaven, things on earth, and things under the earth. He doesn't leave anything out. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what this is talking about. The revelation when Jesus is revealed for all. You know, as you think about it, um, it's an appropriate thing, isn't it? That everybody, every, every person should see Jesus. Think about it. He is responsible for creating you. You know you're created by him. He created you. He sustains you. He gives you breath. All good things in your life, they come from Him. And yet, in many cases, in, even in this room, uh, there are many who don't acknowledge Him, who don't even know Him, don't hardly give a thought, if any at all. Isn't that amazing? Day by day, He sustains everyone here, everyone in the world. And yet, uh, so often people don't give a thought to Him. So it's so appropriate, you see, that after that, whether you acknowledge him or not during your life, 
you're going to actually meet him. And it's interesting, those meetings for everybody are described in this book. If you die not ever having come to know him, nevertheless, you're going to meet him, and that's described in Revelation chapter 20 at the great white throne. You will meet him. You will see him. And it won't be a pleasant meeting. If you know him, it's going to be a wonderful thing. And uh, our meeting with him is going to be at the rapture to begin with. But then later in, in uh, chapter 22, there's a wonderful phrase for the believers that says, they shall see his face. We're going to meet him. Jesus is going to be revealed forever to us. Okay, Revelation, the Revelation. That's where we're at. We're looking at the letters to the seven churches. You remember uh, last time we had a big map up here. You remember that of the west coast of Turkey, then called Asia? And really, uh, it was kind of neat how the, the seven cities formed a circle near the west coast. Remember that? And uh, it's, it's going to come into play here because Jesus describes himself as the one who, who stands, first of all, in chapter 1, and then later in chapter 2, walks in the midst of the seven lampstands. And, and it's really a picture of him being in the midst of the churches. If you can picture the circle of seven lampstands, you know, standing uh, around Jesus, and there he is in the midst. It's a picture of him being in the midst of the churches there. And uh, the outline, now we go back to it, of uh, chapter 1, verse 19. It's a good outline of the book. He says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Okay, the things that he has seen are what we talked about the last couple of times. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Those are the things that John had seen. That's the first part. Second, he says, the things which are. And that's what the next two chapters are going to cover. These are actual churches, the problems and uh, the commendations that he talks about here are very real. And they are. At the time that John wrote, they existed. In fact, these seven churches probably were on John's itinerary. The guy was uh, near 90, probably in his 90s, and he spent uh, the last 60 years of his life ministering in this area, no doubt walking this, this circuit constantly. Uh, ministering at the various churches. So he would probably know every one of these churches personally that uh, the Lord Jesus had him right to. Then, if you'll turn to chapter 4 and just look quickly, this is the third part of the outline. The things which will take place after this. Chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, this is after the seventh letter to the churches, he says, After these things I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. You see that? And you correlate that with chapter 1. That's, now we're looking at the future. And uh, 4 through the rest of the book is the third part, the, the lion's share of the outline. Things that are to come, and in fact, as we speak today, these are still things that are to come. Uh, beginning with the, the tribulation. First with a view into heaven in chapter 4. But that's, that's for another time. But uh, let me just comment now that you have this idea of the outline in your mind. You have uh, chapter 1, the things that he had seen, which was really a revelation to John of Jesus Christ, a vision of the resurrected Lord in his glory. Chapters 2 and 3, the things that are, which are letters to the churches that existed at the time of John and conditions as they were at that time. Uh, it turns out that there's more to the letters than just that. You should have known that. Uh, it's generally believed, and, and you can make a good correlation, that the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 also correspond to a history of the church through the ages. And we'll look at that as we go through it. Uh, beginning with the church of Ephesus, corresponding to the early apostolic times in the church, all the way through to the church at Laodicea, the lukewarm church, remember, which is a picture, unfortunately, of the church of the end times, the times during which we're living. And in between, you can see a, a wonderful correlation between the characteristics of the church, say Smyrna or Philadelphia, and the next period in the history of the church. Really, I believe the only place in the scripture where you could say there's, there's prophecy, so to speak, I mean that loosely, uh, in, in uh, proportion to the church, in relation to the church, 
Really, prophecy has to do with the nation of Israel. And technically speaking, you wouldn't say this is prophecy because he doesn't say, now, these are, these are pictures of the church in the future times. But now that we have been through the ages, there really is a close correspondence. I point that out now because uh, there is such a strong correlation. It's interesting that the church is prominent in chapters 2 and 3, which were the things that are, and then the church is not seen on the earth starting in the tribulation. The church only appears in heaven after that. First characterized by the 24 elders in chapter 4, finished by the um, Mary's Supper of the Lamb, in chapter 19, and of course chapter 22 in the heavenlies. The church, after chapter 3, is only seen in heaven. Okay? Which is, is another, to me, strong argument for the pre-tribulation rapture. But we'll talk about that more when we get into it. So, we're going to look at the seven uh, letters, and not only does this section break down nicely uh, outline-wise, because you have seven letters, and so you just go into over five, six, seven. But each letter itself has the same form. The Lord Jesus is speaking in each case. We should really uh, take notice of that. And uh, there's a form that he follows that he goes through. First of all, each uh, letter, he really, each of them is a letter to a church. He begins with the phrase, there, there are eight sections, you might want to make note of these, to the angel of the church of is the first Standard phrase. He, he, he gives the name of the church, the act of the city where the church is found. Secondly, he says, these things says, and then he uh, gives a characteristic of himself. For example, if you want to follow as an example, go ahead and look at chapter 2. At the end of verse 1, he says, these things says, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, etc. It's different for each church, how he describes himself. Interestingly, the phrase that he applies to himself is found somewhere else in Revelation. In the first churches, the descriptions of himself are generally found in chapter 1, the revelation of him that we saw last time. And he often uses the characteristic that he chooses for himself to apply to that church, either in the commendation or in the rebuke or in the warning. Thirdly, he then says, I know your works penetrating statement. He doesn't just know the outside of the church. He knows from the inside, you see. He's the one that looks on the heart, remember. So he knows the works of the churches corporately and individually through and through. He knows. He weighs them, you see, in the balance. He says, I know your works. And then he lists the works and typically there follows a commendation. He begins with a commendation typically. This is very striking now when you start looking at this outline because there's only one church where he doesn't find anything to approve of. You know which one it is? Laodicea. That's right. The last church. He finds nothing to, to uh, find good in. There's no commendation to the church at Laodicea. Then uh, he says something like, I have, nevertheless, I have this against you. And then he'll list a rebuke something that he has found fault with in the church. Now, it's interesting because there are two churches that he finds no fault with. <laughs> you know what they are? No. Smyrna, the second one. Picture of the church during uh, the great persecutions during the uh, last Roman emperors. And the sixth church, Philadelphia. Picture of the uh, great worldwide evangelistic effort in the 17 and 1800s when the church had such an open door. Then fifth, the fifth section is going to be a command. And the command typically is repent. And he details what they need to repent of. Sixth, uh, there will be a warning if they don't repent. And this is often connected with his introduction of himself. If he's the one with the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, then he is going to uh, judge them with that sharp two-edged sword, for example. <coughs> Then there's a, a common phrase to all the letters. Uh, the seventh section will be, you'll see down toward the end there in, in verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's in every letter. It's uh, similar to um, 
what he would often say during his earthly ministry whenever he uh, spoke a parable or, or preached a sermon, he who has an ear, let him hear. And uh, we should take notice of that. Don't just read over it, but he's, he's saying, I want you to really pay attention to what I'm saying here. This is important. And then finally, he will finish this. The eighth section will be uh, a promise, and it'll, he'll begin it with, to him who overcomes, I will give, or something like that. Okay? So that's the, the, the track we're going to run on through each of these letters. Kind of an eight-point uh, outline for each one. So we'll begin, and uh, we'll look at the letter to the uh, church of Ephesus in verse 1. First, the introduction. To the angel of the church of Ephesus. Right, okay. He's telling John to write a letter. And it says, in my translation, to the angel of the church. Now, some of you may have a, a marginal note there or some kind of an asterisk. Because the, the word there is agalos, the, the Greek word, and it can be translated just as easily messenger. Okay? There are contexts in the scripture where it's clear that it's angel. For example, when uh, God sent the angels to minister the Lord Jesus in uh, the Gospels or in Hebrews where they're called the messengers of God. It's clear when the word is angel and when it's messenger. Here, the translators often choose angel because it sounds like it might be a good thing, but it's not obvious that it's an angel. I believe it's probably just a messenger, someone who's going to carry this message to the church. It's not important. If you believe it's an angel, you're okay. okay. It's just someone representative of the church who is to convey the things that are written to that church. Okay? Angel or messenger. Then the second section, these things says. And uh, it's interesting. You remember the uh, epistles of Paul. Paul typically begins his letters a similar way. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God or something like that. He introduces himself to begin with. Well, here Jesus does a similar thing, but he, uh, he, he has something different each time. And this phrase is taken out of chapter 1. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Okay. And uh, as I said before, when we go through the book of Revelation, when the symbolism is, is clear, I'll try to bring that out. And uh, if it's not really obvious, I'll, I'll, t I'll tell you that and I'll venture a few opinions, but I'll try to make it clear that it's, we really don't know for sure. Okay? Embrace yourself. There's going to be a lot of that because these things haven't happened yet. It's prophecy. And just as the Old Testament prophecies weren't clear before Jesus came the first time, we shouldn't be surprised that there's a lot in the book of Revelation and Second Thessalonians and, and uh, the Old Testament prophets in Matthew uh, 20 through 26 and so on that we just don't know, in spite of the books that are filling the Christian bookstores today. Okay? So in this case now, the symbolism is pretty clear. The seven stars and the seven lampstands in some way represent the seven churches. Okay? And him holding the seven stars is, is a picture of his, first of all, his authority over those churches, over this church, any church, but also his care. Just as he said individually of us as believers, you know, uh, I hold them in my hand and the Father who is greater than me, they're in his hand and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. You know, John chapter 10, he holds us in his hand individually. Well, representatively, he, he cares for the churches in that way as well by holding us in his hand. It's wonderful, really. Uh, he has a special relationship with this church, he holds his church in his hand. Praise the Lord. Now the lampstands are, are throughout Scripture. Light is typically, when it's applied to us, is their testimony. And that's going to come into play in this letter as we look at it later on. But it's their light shining before men. And as he walks through the lampstands, you can almost see him checking on the oil level in the lamps. You know, How's the testimony in this, in this church going? As we're going to see in this particular uh, case, he's actually going to threaten to remove the lampstand. Is that, that is take away their testimony because of the problems in the church. Okay, and he walks. I like that. He, he walks among uh, the lampstands, representative of the, of the uh, seven churches and the testimonies. He's active, you see. He's not complacent. He's, really, it's Jesus at work in any local church that's fruitful. Remember when we talked about the beginning of the book of Acts? There again, the title may be in some of your Bibles, The Acts of the Apostles. They ought to call it The Acts of Jesus Christ. He's the one that's doing the work. 
in the church. He is the one who promised to build his church, and he is doing it. He is the active one, walking among the lampstands. Okay, third section. Verse 2, I know your works. Remember that phrase. And now he's going to actually commend the church. Your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. And then again in verse 6, he has more commendation. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. A commendation. Really, there are two uh, features that the Lord Jesus describes here that he finds commendable in this church of Ephesus. The first one is their perseverance. You notice that? Uh, verse 2. I know your works, your labor, your patience. And um, verse 3. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Now, as we go through these letters, really there are three ways we want to take them. First of all, is clearly what he is saying to the church at that time. That's the primary interpretation of these verses. But secondly, there's an application to our lives as well. We shouldn't read through these uh, letters and think, oh, well, that applies to that church way back then. I'll tell you, when you read things like, nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love, if that doesn't hit your heart, I don't know what will. So let's, let's, as we go through these, not only think about what it says to the church, but what it says to me as well. And then thirdly, as I said, we'll, we'll look at its uh, corresponding picture in the history of the church. And so, I want to take this to heart. The Lord Jesus, I, I like to know what he likes. I, know, I want to know what the things he really uh, appreciates, you know, what he looks for. Because whatever pleases him, that's what I want to do. Aren't you like that? You know? Just as the things that he hates, I want to be that way. For example, he commends them. There are the, we'll talk about who the Nicolaitans are in a minute. But he says that he, they hate their deeds. And he says, so do I. I'd like, I, that sounds good, you know. I think like Jesus. I love the things he loves, and I hate the things he hates. Proverbs 6 has uh, six slash seven things, you know, that he says God hates. These are an abomination to him. I sit up and take notice when I see things like that. These are particularly hateful to him. Well, here are some things that are particularly noticeable, particularly commendable to him, and one of them is perseverance. And I know why. You know, how many, if you've been a believer for a while, people have you seen who have started out like a Roman candle, you know, and then they kind of disappear from the scene? I tell you, it's a story told over and over, and it's a sad thing. Someone professes Jesus, and, and uh, they go out, they may even be preaching, and then give them a year or two, and they just fizzle out. Jesus is worthy of more than that, let me tell you. He's not like that with me, praise God. You know, he's faithful to the end with me. And so Jesus appreciates it when, you, when, when he sees a believer who's faithful, who perseveres, who hangs in there year after year, decade after decade, until they go to be with him. That means a lot to him. You know, really, it's all we should do. It's, it's, it's the necessary thing. You know, we're obligated. But he appreciates it. And as I look at it, I appreciate the saints that I've seen year after year, in some cases decades, serving the Lord faithfully and not growing weary. Hang in there. More than that, get stronger every year. <laughs> Mount up with wings like eagles. He's worth it. And he notices that about the Ephesian church, and he commends it. He says it's a good thing. The second thing that he commends, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this because it's probably the most dominant theme in the letters to the churches, and that is their doctrinal purity. He says in the second part of verse 2, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And then in verse 6, he talks about the Nicolaitans, as we said. And really, this is by far the most dominant theme uh, throughout the seven letters. Either uh, rebuking a church for their error 
in doctrine, or commending them as in this case for their soundness in doctrine. You know, today, doctrine is pretty, among uh, the so-called churches, when I say church now, I'm thinking of Christendom, those who profess to be Christians. And today, doctrine is really unimportant. It's become unimportant. Do you know that? In the mega churches particularly, not just in this country, but throughout the world, preaching is old-fashioned. I tell you, I would be out of place in most churches today. You know what I'm called? A talking head. Talking heads don't cut it today. People don't want talking heads. You know, they want to be entertained. Now, people have always wanted to be entertained, but never in the history of the church has the church bowed so low and scraped so hard to accommodate the people, to entertain them, than in the day we live. I tell you, you can go right down the list of the forms of entertainment that are found in the world, and the church has bent over backwards, and successfully too, by the way. They capture audiences in some cases of tens of thousands with uh, their entertaining schedules. The songs, the music styles, the big bands. I tell you, they're performers. They're performing. Now, the words, the words of uh, a lot of contemporary Christian quote-unquote music today is fluff. It's man-centered. In fact, if you were to take the theme of a lot of contemporary Christian songs, it's pretty much as, ask not what I can do for Jesus, but ask what Jesus can do for me. And that's entertaining. You know, that makes me feel good. Second big thing uh, that's hit the church really in the last decade is Drama. Drama. You know, people are used to watching TV and watching movies. When they go to church, they want to watch somebody act something out. And uh, they tend to be, you know, quote, relevant stories. And by that I mean irrelevant to the Bible. But interesting to the people in the audience. And again in the last decade is uh, humor. Humor. Uh, in many places, I mean, the featured star is a comedian, really. You remember Don uh, did a series on this a couple of years ago about this Holy laughter movement. It's real. It's growing. People go to get entertained. Why? Uh, It's really simple to understand. Why do the, quote, churches do these sorts of things? To get people to come. You know, they, they have this mindset that the more people we can get to come, somehow the more successful we are. But the point is, you're, you're, not, uh, you're not getting people to come to get saved. You're getting them to come to your meeting. This, this is appealing to the unsaved nature. This is appealing to people who don't know Jesus. Did you know that Jesus designed the church for believers? Does that shock you? The church is for believers. Now, please understand, I'm not saying don't invite your friends to church. Please do. That's great. And we've seen people get saved that way. But primarily, Jesus intends the church to be for believers. Read in 1 Corinthians 14, where he says, if there happens to be an unbeliever who comes in your midst, he will fall down and say, certainly God is among you. The implication there is that, you know, once in a while, an unbeliever might wander into the meeting. And if you look at the activities of the church, they're for Christians, the talking head. (laughs) People in the world don't want to hear some guy get up there and talk from this dry book. Unless God is working in their heart and drawing them to to himself. But just to get people to come in and do whatever you have to do to make them happy and comfortable and entertain them, uh-uh. That's never what God had in mind. That's not the church. That's something else. That's, uh, that's Universal Studios. Okay, that's not in the Bible. And we have really departed from the Scripture uh, when we come to that point. So, like it or not, as long as uh, Howard and I are elders and, and whoever comes after us, the primary ministries here are going to be the ones out of Acts chapter 2. The, the apostles' doctrine, preaching of the word, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. That's the way it was in the New Testament. And if that bores you, well, and we've had people do that, I know. I remember one fellow we had come, and, and really, uh, he shouldn't have been here. He, he came and sat at the break of bread, and he was so bored. And afterwards, he was complaining about what a terrible meeting it was. Well, what, he didn't know the Lord, you know. And, and yet, I know, I've, how many times have we talked among each other and say, you know, that's, that's my favorite meeting of the, of the week. You know, that's the pick-me-up. When I just focus on Jesus and his love for me, I'll tell you. It revitalizes me. You see, the New Testament pattern really was 
that the, the believers come together in the church to edify one another, to worship the Lord. You know, uh, you see in the, in the early books of Acts, you're seeing it right now in Acts, how they went out, to, they scattered to evangelize. But then when they got beaten and released, they always, it says they returned to their own. You see, to encourage one another, like Charlie did this morning with this story, to exhort one another, to rebuke one another, to comfort one another, one another, one another. Anyway, uh, the doctrinal aspect, really, of uh, Christianity has, has been laid by the wayside. And it's amazing how, after really just 60 years here, this is around 90 A.D., the Lord ascended somewhere around 30 A.D., within 60 years, the number of errors that have crept into the church, it's amazing. And it's no wonder that really when you think about it, Correct doctrine is a major theme in the New Testament. Doctrine is not a boring thing for theologians. It's necessary for right living. And it's, and it's a core of the New Testament. Listen to this. First, the whole books of First and Second Timothy and in doctrine, as well as rebuking those who are teaching error. And you see Paul's concern, particularly in 2 Timothy, as he's approaching death and to be with the Lord, that he's concerned that uh, Timothy carry on the work, that, that the error not begin to creep in. You see, it happens so slowly and subtly. I, I, can, uh, I won't name them, but I can tell you, whole denominations that began so solid and, and strong in the Lord doctrinally hundreds of years ago. And at some point in their history, they, they just adopted a very small error, scripturally. And they just opened the door, just a little crack. And, and today, I mean, there's no gospel. They don't even believe the Bible in many cases. But it started with a little error, you see. This is not a small thing uh, to stay solid, to, to remain close to the Lord in doctrine. Second Peter and Jude are entirely devoted to refuting false, false teachers, exposing them. And in fact, uh, three of the books in the New Testament, Galatians, Colossians, and First uh, John, are entirely devoted to refuting specific heresies that were prevalent at that time. And then you take uh, those epistles and the remaining ones, every one of them has at least a section devoted to some error somewhere that had crept in to the church. So it's a significant thing. And it started way back then. And of course, the devil's behind it. I mean, just as he perverted the word of God in the garden, you know, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely not die. One word. God's holding out on you, you know. You eat it and your eyes will be open. You don't know what you're missing. He's hard at work. He started hard at work as soon as the church started the day of Pentecost. And he's very busy even today. <clears throat> Which is why, uh, a few years ago, Don and I conducted the doctrinal study. You, you men remember that. It took us three years to go through uh, basic Christian doctrine. We took all the categories of doctrine from bibliology and soteriology to homartiology and ecclesiology and eschatology and all the other ologies. But it wasn't just ologies, as, as you brothers can testify. Uh, we really dug into real life issues. And, and I just... Uh, was going through the outline of the course the other day, and uh, it struck me that we found one of the most effective ways to teach that class, to teach doctrines, was to uh, think about errors and heresies in the particular area we were studying at the time. And the guys would sometimes really get riled up when we would ask some of these questions. But they were the kind of questions you run into every day. Errors. A friend would bring it up, or you hear it on the radio, or you see it someplace. So just, just to give you an idea, this, this class we took, that, that we taught, took about three years. There were almost 50 lessons in all. Think of that, guys. You went through 50 classes. Two hours each. And in here, we have over 100 different errors that we uh, brought up for the guys to wrestle with and to address scripturally. And, and, and that's not exhaustive. I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. 
But uh, let me just give you a sample of the sort of things we ran into and what the church has been facing ever since. But the pur- purpose of doing this is to stress to you the need to uh, carry on sound doctrine from generation to generation, brothers and sisters. And it's not a small thing. We have to be wary and watchful that we stay pure in doctrine. So the first uh, week, you, you typically begin in theology with what's called bibliology, studying the, the Scripture, the authority of Scripture, uh, revelation, illumination, inspiration, and those sorts of things. So here, here are four, we, be, we hit them right away with four things that they might hear from a friend, and how would you answer this from the Bible? You brothers probably remember these. Number one, the commands regarding women's head coverings are cultural, applying only to women in the early church and are no longer valid today. That's one of the easier ones to address, by the way. Second, a friend asked you about a set of videotapes entitled The Lost Books of the Bible. You ever heard of that? Bestseller. Which tell about recently discovered writings that should have been included in the Bible but were mistakenly left out. How would you answer that? Third, a Mormon co-worker tells you that the Bible as we have it today has been corrupted and that God gave us a newer revelation in the form of the Book of Mormon. I see the ladies smiling. You guys missed something, didn't you? Get, get, the, get a copy of this from your husband. Number four, a Catholic friend asks you why your Bible doesn't have the Apocrypha in it. You know what the Apocrypha is? You know it's not in your Bible? You know why? Well, the guys started getting a little rattled. We really hit them the second week. Here's some of them. Uh, we're still on the authority of Scripture. A Christian friend is excited about a book entitled... This was in 1995, so we updated it from 88. Entitled, 95 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1995, which he heard advertised on a Christian radio station. How would you respond? Second, a young man in the assembly has come to you for counsel, saying that God showed him in his quiet time that Sally Smith is the right girl for him. How would you answer? Third, how would you respond to an unsafe friend? I had this happen at dinner one time when I had some saints over and... Uh, a couple of unsaved people. An unsaved friend who says, my son had a dream about that plane crash in Denver a week before it happened. How do you explain that? Fourth, answer a religious friend who insists that it's only the ideas in the Bible that are inspired and not the words. I'll tell you, I, Don and I have encountered every one of these in our lives, and I'm, I'm sure many of you have encountered that, at least most of them. These are the sort of things we have to be ready to give an answer for, First Peter 3. If we don't, they creep in, you see. Uh, still on the Bible. In conversation, someone scoffingly remarks, oh, you're one of those Bible literalists. How would you answer? Second, you can make the Bible say whatever you want to. It's just a matter of interpretation. Do you agree? And then we really hit him. We gave him some tough passages. Uh, 1 Peter 3.19, Mark 16.16, 16, and so on that are, uh, as, as God says in Second uh, Peter, that the unsaved rest to their, own dis- to their own destruction. They twist and distort them. Well, I'll just give you a few. Uh, we got into the person of God, the Godhead. This is theology proper. And uh, we took four uh, skeptics or, or uh, cultists. First one was a Jehovah's Witness who says, you don't believe in the Trinity, do you? That word's not in the Bible, you know. How would you answer that? Second one was a Star Wars fan. May the force be with you. This is popular as ever, I understand. People were camping out for nights to, to watch that thing and, and uh, drink in its wonderful message about the force. You know, this impersonal, uh, inanimate force that I guess is supposed to be God. And it didn't start with Star Wars either, by the way. It started back in the first century. A Mormon friend and this is, the, this is the way they say it. This is a direct quote. As we are, God once was. As God is, we one day will be. A skeptic. The Bible is full of contradictions. And we gave a couple that uh, people like to pick on, which are not contradictions, by the way, but you need to prove it. Well, we got it. I'll just couple, uh, give you a couple more. Maybe this will get you thinking. Maybe someone will drive you to the Word. Uh, we got into uh, angelology. Can you imagine what that's a study of? Answer the person who says, the devil made me do it. From the Bible now. Every one of these has to be answered from the Bible. 
You're on the street. All you got is your, your pocket Bible and the Holy Spirit and your memory. Explain how a medium can direct police investigators to an evidence without having prior knowledge of it. Third, can believers be demon-possessed? Fourth, do mediums really contact the spirits of dead people? 1 Samuel 28. Of course, we had a heyday with uh, evolution and all its offshoots. Uh, we had a heyday on sin. <clears throat> and, I'll, and I'll finish with this. This is uh, anthropology. It's the study of man, believe it or not, but not bones, but uh, man according to the Bible. First, if God were truly a loving God, he would not permit all the evil, violence, and suffering that we see in the world around us. Ever heard that one? Got an answer from the Bible? Second, since God created the devil and he created man, God is ultimately responsible for all the sins of the world. Third, sin is a relative term. What was considered sinful a hundred or a thousand years ago may be good practice today, and things which we consider sinful in this culture may be perfectly acceptable in another. Sounds good, huh? The idea that I am in any way connected with the sin of Adam is unfair. I'm getting blamed for something that somebody else did. Romans 5. How can I be held responsible for my own sins if I was born with a sin nature? It's unfair. I mean, it's like I couldn't help myself. Third, no civilized person can believe in a literal hell. It's unfair, cruel, and excessive punishment. And finally, actually, there's no such thing as eternal punishment. Just like animals, we die, and that's the end. Even the Bible teaches that, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And that's just a smattering out of the more than 100 errors that we were able to think of the top of our head. There are thousands, probably hundreds of thousands, running around. The devil's hard at work. And he was hard at work right here, back in the early days of the church. And uh, in the case of the church of Ephesus, they were holding strong. I want to just uh, throw out a, an encouragement and an exhortation. If Jesus tarries, who here is going to carry on the faith once delivered to the saints? Brothers, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now. I don't mean somebody speak, standing up and, and talking like they, they sound like what they, uh, that they know what they're, they're saying. Anybody can do that. False teachers do that. I mean, a spirit-filled set of brothers who are going to stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord, and be filled with the Holy Spirit when they do it. I, I'll tell you, I know churches in the Bay Area, assemblies in the Bay Area, in which in my lifetime have literally tubed out because of one or two influential men within that assembly who went off on a, on a tangent, on a straight path. This, this is real. And uh, we're in the last days. It's happening around us right now. Well, in Ephesus, he says in verse 2, you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. How do you think they tested him? Right here. Like the Bereans, they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. That's the way to do it. And they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans too. That was the other soundness in doctrine. Jesus said he hated their deeds too. It's interesting. Uh, it appears that the Nicolaitans were the early forms of introducing this idea of clergy into the church. You know, uh, this clergy is like a special class of people with special clothing, special titles, special privileges, special powers, set apart from what was called the laity. Well, he commends the church, but uh, verse um, 4, there is the nevertheless. He has a rebuke for them. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you, and what a simple, poignant to me statement that you have left your first love. You've left your first love. And it's so strong, this, this problem is so serious, it's interesting, that as sound as they are in doctrine, because they have left their first love, he threatens to remove the lampstand from them, i.e., their, their witness, their testimony is going to go kaput. He, do, he doesn't want believers to be sound in doctrine, but cold-hearted toward him, running around talking about him. It's interesting. 
1 Corinthians 13. You can be sound in doctrine as, as the most proper uh, theologic summa, but if you don't love Jesus, it's better to be quiet because you're like a clanging cymbal or a sounding gong, he says. Love. Love for Jesus. You see, they're both important. Sound doctrine, but strong affection for the Savior has to be coupled with it. Dry theology, dry, dead orthodoxy is probably one of the most repulsive things to Jesus, and I understand why. You know, to know all the right facts up here, but not to have a heart of love. It's kind of sad, particularly for the church of Ephesus, because this is the one church in the seven churches that we can actually look back and look at their history. The other six are really not mentioned that much, if at all. But we actually have a letter, as you know, to the Ephesus, the Ephesian church, written about 30 years earlier. And it's amazing that in the beginning he commends them for their love. They're in chapter 1, verse 15. He commends them for their love. It was a trademark of the church. But in the last 30 years, the next generation of believers have come in and they've cooled off and they just don't love Jesus the way they used to. And the, and the phrasing here, the way Jesus says it, you know, uh, it's so personal. You've left your first love. Praise the Lord. You know, His love doesn't wane for us. You know, you know Jesus cannot love you more than He does right now. Isn't that wonderful? It's not like He gave you 90% of His love and, and it kind of grows over the years. He started right off, bang, loving you as much as He can. You don't believe it? Look at the cross. What more could He do? And He loves you as much today, which is as much as He can, and will tomorrow and for eternity. He says, yeah, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. His love is faithful, consistent. And I think we have to agree when we sing that song, you know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Let's take a lesson from the church of Ephesus. Let me ask you, if Jesus were to look you in the eye right now as he did Peter way back in John chapter 20, he looked you in the eye and he said, do you love me? If Jesus looked you in the eye and asked you that, what would you say? Look back over your Christian life. Look back. Are you one of those? Uh, when you got saved, all you, could, all you could think about was Jesus. All you could talk about was Jesus. You loved him so much. But something's happened. Maybe the love is cooled. You know, really, our love for the Savior should get stronger every day if we're growing the way He wants us to. No, the more we learn about Him, the more we should be loving Him. Note that He said, I have this against you. He didn't say that you have lost your first love. Or He didn't say, you know, you, you don't love me the way you see. He says, you have left. Your first love, interesting. It was, a, it was a volitional choice. It was a willful choice. And that's the way to somewhere along the line, uh, something comes into our lives and we basically replace Jesus with that. It should grow, our love for him. What's the solution? Well, the fifth section is the command. And he says plainly in verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, Repent and do the first works. Repent. It's so simple, you know, really, if you think about it, if my love for the Lord Jesus is not what it should be, do you know what, you know what the problem is? It's really simple. There's something else in my life that has my affection. It's real simple. We all love something or someone to the max. And it could be anything from a, a person to an activity, a hobby, a thing, you name it, a possession, a career, you know, like we could go, you name it. Anything can fill our affections. And if it's not Jesus, then it's something else. Well, that makes it even simpler. Because the solution is whatever's in first place needs to what? Needs to go. That's right. Repent. Turn from that. You know, there's only one person in the whole universe that really deserves all my heart. And that's Jesus. 
And so if he's not there in first place, think about it. Maybe there's something in your life that's crowded him out. It's really simple. It doesn't take days. It doesn't take weeks. It can be done in an instant of repentance. Maybe sometimes there's some physical cleanup that may need to be done or some conversations that might have to take place. But the solution is so simple, and he says it real plain. Remember, repent, return. Go back to the first works. And as we said, how serious is this problem? Well, it's serious enough that even though their doctrine was just as sound as could be, he says, uh, or else I will come to you quickly, quickly, notice, and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And here, of course, he's talking to a church as a whole. And what does it mean to practically remove the lampstand? Well, simply, as I said, their testimony is going to disappear. He's going to remove their testimony. They're going to be fruitless for him. And there's no... Can you think of a worse place to be for Jesus than to be barren? You know, living a Christian life in the flesh with no fruit to show for it? And there's no more miserable people in the world, by the way. Do you know that? I, th- I think a, a, a Christian who has lost his or her first love and is barren for Jesus is probably more miserable than an unsaved person. Then his phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear. And he means anybody. This isn't just to the church at Ephesus in 90 AD. This is to you too, and to me, right now. And uh, finally he finishes with a promise. He who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God, and I can't really tell you a lot about that. I've never seen the tree. I can tell you it's real. He talks about it in chapter 22. And uh, he's going to give to the overcomer to eat from that tree. I don't know what it's like to eat from that tree, but I can tell you it's a wonderful thing. If Jesus holds it out as a promise for someone, I'll guarantee it's, it's better than anything you've ever experienced. Okay? <laughs> That's all I can tell you. But I love the way he uses the word paradise here. I love that word. I've talked about that before. It's only used three times in the New Testament. Usually when God talks about his dwelling place and when with him, he uses the word heaven. But there are three places where he uses the word paradise. The first time is with the thief on the cross, you remember. And it's so wonderful that he tells him that this day you will be with me in paradise because he was not in paradise right then, hanging from the cross, dying in agony. Jesus couldn't chose a better word to encourage that man. And here he uses it again. He says, that tree that I'm going to give you to eat of, it's in the paradise of God. Paradise. It means just the way you know, we take it. It's, it's a, uh, an alliteration of the Greek word, paradiso. Paradise. The most wonderful place you could ever be. So until we get there, may we be characterized by our love for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you will deliver us from dead orthodoxy. Lord, there is really one person in all of the universe that de- deserves us to love with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We confess often, we squander our affections on things that are not worth it and regret it afterwards. Lord, may we corporately and individually be characterized by the statement that was said of you outside the tomb of Lazarus. See how they loved him. May it be seen by others, our love for Jesus. Help us, we pray, in your precious name. Amen.